from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, Evangelicals and the Me Too Movement. Host Leith Anderson, NAE President, talks with Kathy Kong, Director of Campus Access Initiatives for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. Let's join in. I'm Leith Anderson, President of the NAE, here with Kathy Kong. Kathy is a speaker, journalist, and activist. She has worked with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship for more than 20 years, first as a campus staff minister, and then as area director, and then uh, regional multi-ethnic director, and now as the director of campus access initiatives. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. But areas of interest and particular expertise include gender, ethnicity, justice, and leadership development. Prior to InterVarsity, uh, Kathy was a reporter at the Green Bay Press-Gazette and at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and she continues to write for various publications. Kathy co-authored uh, More Than Serving Tea, Asian American Women on Expectations, Relationships, Leadership, and Faith, and is the author of Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. So thanks for joining us today, Kathy. Thanks, Leith. And first, just maybe uh, explain a little bit about InterVarsity and your role at InterVarsity, and then we'll get into our topic for today. I mean, actually, you know, my question is, what does a director of campus access initiatives do? <laughs> well, it's um, it's a fancy title that uh, actually lots of people internally and externally ask about. So my job with InterVarsity is to build relationships with folks on the ground in the institution of higher ed. And InterVarsity is a campus ministry. We have about um, just over a thousand chapters across almost 700 campuses in the U.S. And we currently have about 27,000 students and faculty who are involved in our small groups. Um, and really my role is to make connections between our field staff and the work that we're doing with students and faculty and connecting that to folks who are committed to higher education, folks who are in student affairs, the deans, people who are in the administration, so that uh, staff with InterVarsity understand the institution of higher ed and that folks in higher education understand the work we are doing in terms of fostering healthy uh, religious environments for our students. Wow, you have uh, what's called a long scope there in terms of yes. responsibilities. Well, let's talk about the Me Too movement. It's been a while since uh, the movement began, and it may be that some who are part of our conversation today you know, may not really know the history. So again, let's sort of back up a little bit. How did Me Too get started? Sure. Well, I think that many listeners um, connect the Me Too movement with the hashtag that um, picked up speed about a year, sometime in 2017. And that um, was following the allegations around Harvey Weinstein. Um, but the Me Too movement is actually a, has a longer history and is tied to uh, civil rights activist Tarana Burke, um, who was trying to raise awareness around sexual abuse and assault and developed that phrase uh, back, I think, in, I want to say 2006. 
So it goes back a while, uh, but I think um, more recent events have kind of picked up the attention and then the hashtag with social media. So movements, uh, they change, they, they, they evolve over time. Um, and has that happened? I mean, how would you describe what um, the Me Too movement has become, or I'm going to ask you more about this a little bit later, but what it will become uh, in terms of where it started out? And one of the things, of course, is enormous breadth of awareness uh, across the country. Well, I think that it has uh, moved away from uh, just a hashtag to some more important, deeper questions around our culture and society. It's moved beyond um, perhaps the initial attention that uh, it was connected to with Hollywood and the entertainment industry and moved. Um, closer to home for a lot of us uh, in our churches, in our communities, in our schools. Uh, in my work with InterVarsity, there's always a conversation around uh, sexual violence, sexual assault connected um, to the university and particularly to um, different pockets of the community there on campuses. Um, it's moved away uh, from being just a woman's issue and becoming a much broader cultural societal issue that draws in and requires the attention of men and women. We've seen church leaders, pastors who have uh, resigned due to sexual harassment or sexual abuse, uh, either to which they've uh, admitted or um, has been alleged. Is the church having its own Me Too movement? Is is this just part of something else, or is it a distinct category? I mean, how, how do you relate the church specifically to Me Too? Well, it's. I think there are distinctives within what is happening within the church, and uh, but it's definitely related to what is going on in the broader culture. It can't be separated. I think that uh, that would be a mistake on our parts um, as Christians to think that what's happening in the church is completely separate and uh, unconnected to what's going on in the broader Me Too movement. I think that there is an internal questioning for men and women in the church about the spoken and unspoken rules of engagement that we have encouraged and what it means to address the inherent humanity of one another and how we are created um, both in God's image and um, how we've addressed issues around purity and sexuality and uh, power in leadership. So it's really not all that different from what's going on, but we have our own language around that. Um, purity culture, sin, those are the words that are not uh, necessarily transferable into the broader culture, but definitely and distinctly within the church culture. So power and the abuse of power is an essential element. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This is not just about sex. And, of course, within the context of the church, we're dealing with uh, biblical and theological issues that are 
both interwoven and uh, in some ways supersede the other issues. So in, in, in that way, it would be different because of the biblical standards that, that are part of it, right? Sure. There are biblical standards that the broader culture does not adhere to or even aware of, but I don't think we can separate our interpretation and um, kind of the different way in which we enter into biblical values, depending on denomination, um, independent church, um, how our pastoral leadership functions. We can't separate that from also the influence and impact of patriarchy across culture, whether that's within the church or the broader culture. So it's kind of like we're living in a time of both confrontation and confession, a a time that's uh, focused on openness about ways women have been abused and and mistreated. I'm thinking that, you know, we can, you and I can talk about this theoretically, but there are people who's, who are hearing our voices right now who deal with a specific situation and, and they're looking for some kind of guidance, um, hope, uh, you know, a, a direction to go. So, you know, what, what do you tell people as Christian leaders and then people in the pew? What should the response be when facing these issues? Well, I'm hoping that the response will be, is, will continue to be, one of grace and love, particularly for uh, the victims and survivors of sexual abuse, um, sexual harassment in the church, where the conversations around power should be happening but have not. I hope that um, victims, survivors are finding community, they are finding safety, and they are finding that they have opportunities to tell their story and to be believed. Um, I hope that they are experiencing um, a degree of relief as things across culture come to light and that there are individuals and churches that are entering into a time of confession as opposed to a time of further accusation. It's kind of easy to see the downside. Um, So accusations are made and then they're not believed or um, someone is... uh, fired and leave, leaves a, an organization or, or a church. Um, so the, the, those are easier to see than the positive side. And when you talk about grace and love, that's an example. But is there any way with that we can take advantage of this opportunity, a way that's healthy and productive, and a way that can make God look good and the gospel come out okay, even in the midst of difficulties? Is, is, is there an upside? Is there a way to do this? right that's positive? Goodness, I hope there is. (laughs) Otherwise, it calls into question exactly what we have said we believe in and say what we want to live out, that the gospel is good news for everyone. Um, What an example it would be for churches facing these 
situations, whether it's a leader in the church or uh, a member of the church, uh, to surround um, both parties with the necessary support that they need. What would it look like for churches to be calling for public times of confession? Because I think that that is something the world doesn't see and needs to see and is part of the gospel that we claim and proclaim, that God's love moves us into a time of confession. God moves us into a time of releasing that from our um, releasing us from the weight of carrying that alone and that there is forgiveness for us and for us collectively as the church. Um, it would be amazing to see how um, churches could come around survivors and also continue the conversation with their young adults and their youth because this isn't just a problem that focuses on grown adults, but also is tied to the way in which we are teaching our children basically how to treat one another and how to wrestle with power. There's so many factors, there's so many variables, and obviously one of them has to be um, Me Too being fueled with social media. Uh, you know, you were talking about hashtags before, and there are a lot of them. So it's hashtag mm -hmm. me too, it's hashtag church too, hashtag silence is not spiritual. How should we think about this, the, the role of social media? And is, you know, in total, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Well, social media is a tool, and it's a way in which technology and developments around technology have change the way people communicate with one another and interact with the world. So it's not unlike how generations in the past had to wrestle with television or radio or even newspapers and print. So I, I don't want us to focus so much on the particulars of social media as being good or bad. It's a, it's a tool. And generally, from where I sit, I actually think it's a good thing. Now, I know there are many folks out there who would disagree with me, but for me as a woman of color, I have found that social media has allowed me to connect with more people than I would have been able to connect with if it were just always face-to-face -face interactions. It's also enabled me to get information and connect with people who have different life experiences and maybe even different opinions about the things going on around the world. And so when you tie that in with hashtags and movements and the church, I think that it's an opportunity and it's a good thing for the church and for Christians to at least pay attention to and to see how people want to stay connected, how people want to get their information, how this is a more global issue than just here in the U.S. And 
I think it's an opportunity and a good thing for us to link arms with women across the globe who have experienced abuse at the hands of men with power. Let's go back just a minute to something you were saying before. You had good insights and, and advice on confession and ways that the, the Christian community can deal with these things. And it, I guess I'd like to hear a little more from you on uh, whether there should be a difference in the church context and the secular context in dealing with this. And and also, th- there's a there's a connection. So uh, churches that have uh, have said, well, we're just going to deal with this within the church, often have not okay. known what they're doing or have not handled it well. Um, and, you know, there are people who say, well, you should have called the police, you should have gotten the authorities involved. So that takes it outside the church. And at the same time, as things are handled in the church, there's a concern and a fear of how things are done because there may be criminal charges and lawsuits. It's, it's kind of hard to separate these pieces. Uh, so you know, should there be a difference in the church and the non-church world? Well, I think that um, there's always a danger in thinking of the church as the institution that can handle alone, especially charges and accusations of sexual abuse. And that um, perhaps uh, the church as an institution, particularly the evangelical church, needs to wrestle with its relationship to police and um, other institutions in culture, that sometimes we are supposed to be best friends with law enforcement, and other times they are not invited into the processes within our church. But what I'd love to see is that Um, the church, Christians, would be leading examples of confession. I think that that is something that is unique within our faith tradition and that is not a part of the broader culture. And what would it look like for pastors, Christian leaders, the church, to be leading its congregants and other believers into public confession. I think a lot of the energy around um, the social media hashtags and the stories that are being told on social media is the feeling that there are no other places in which these stories will be heard. And so what would it look like for the church to open up its doors to be a place that allowed women and survivors to tell their stories without judgment, without pointing fingers, um, and to simply listen and to be a part of a public confession around the brokenness and the evil that's happened. I think that's a way in which I think that the church could be the good news in a cultural moment that is fraught with distrust. Your longtime experience is, is on campuses. You've been wonderfully helpful in terms of, of the church, but harassment and, and rape can happen to women and men anywhere, including, mm-hmm. and it just seemed particularly many of the stories that, that make it to the press are on campuses or at least in 
connection with colleges. So what kinds of conversations are, are taking place around these issues in higher education and particularly among campus ministries? Well, around um, for campus ministries, I know that there are many conversations happening right now for um, the kind of training that campus ministers um, need to have, should have, and often um, don't have in terms of recognizing um, uh, the dynamics around sexual harassment and sexual abuse when it pertains to students or other staff or what's going on on the campus in general, and what role do we play? For InterVarsity, we are not um, faculty. We are not part of the higher ed institution. We are guests there on campus. And so what role do we play and what are the um, connections that we need to make with the university, with law enforcement, with pastors? I think those are the kinds of conversations that are happening within campus ministry. And then the relationship to where we serve and how we're guests on uh, the campuses that we minister on, how can we be better guests? How can we um, learn the processes of the institution, respect those, but also be very clear about what other processes we may have as um, uh, another organization that is allowed to be on campus? I think that uh, the other conversations that are happening is um, reporting. What role do we have? Are we um, required to report? Who do we report to first? I think those are the types of things that we don't necessarily um, have clear training on that we are learning about and gathering information around. And then I think part of it is also recognizing the students that we welcome into our chapters also do not have necessarily the language and the training to identify what is sexual harassment and sexual abuse. And some of that training happens for freshmen when they end up at a campus and there's university kind of freshman orientation. There are many different programs and um, conversations that happen with freshmen to help them understand this is what uh, constitutes as harassment. This is where it crosses the legal line into abuse. But we find that generally they are not having those conversations um, in their youth groups. They're not having conversations around sex and power and abuse in their youth groups. And so I think that there are many opportunities in which for us as campus ministers, uh, trying to find ways that we can also then partner not just with higher education, but also partner with our local churches and be a resource in helping both parents and students make that transition into a level of independence that they find on campus, as well as um, awareness of the things that they will face. Kathy, picture yourself at a kitchen table with parents who have a daughter who is figuring out, and this is her senior year in high school, and she's figuring out where she's going to go and what she's going to do next. And she asks, or they ask you concerning her, um, how, how do we prepare her to protect herself from 
sexual harassment and abuse when she moves into the dorm, when she lands on the campus. What, what advice do you give to parents and how to get their child ready? Well, I, I um, this is not unlike personal experience. So we launched our daughter several years ago to um, college and she's since graduated. And the conversation that we had um, between us as a family actually wasn't all that different around the conversation that we had with our son, who is now a sophomore in college, which is to talk about um, how we are all created in God's image, how we treat one another, and how we make clear to other people what is okay and what is not. So the issue of consent, um, how, uh, what touch is allowed, um, what is appropriate. And um, we actually uh, have had to have many conversations around, um, it, it really doesn't matter what you're wearing or where you happen to be on campus. That does not give a person the right to assault you. That doesn't give anyone the right to abuse you. Um, and that is not your fault if you happen to become a victim. That is part of the brokenness and the wickedness of the world. That said, as a parent, I am always concerned whether it's my son or my daughter being out on campus, out on public, um, out in public at 2 a.m. Simply because everyone should be asleep at 2 a.m. <laughs> but, um, but that's not to say I don't have anxiety around that for both my children. The reality, though, is uh, my daughter is more at risk than my son is. And the consequences of rape to my daughter are different than to my son. And so we do have conversations around that. And I do tell parents, you know, the difficulty is you cannot completely protect your children. And that's the hardest part. And I think we learn that lesson in baby steps as our children grow up. Um, but sending them off to college is a huge decision. It's a huge privilege. Um, but there is not that much we can do once they are on the campus and have the freedom to walk around from the library to their dorm at 2 o'clock in the morning, which I did as a college student as well. So, Kathy, your, your new book is titled raise your voice, why we stay silent, and how to speak up. So uh, talk about the book and particularly about how your book speaks to the Me Too movement and these other issues we've been talking about. Well, the book is literally about raising your voice, whether it's your physical voice or uh, using your influence in whatever context you happen to be, whether it's your neighborhood, your church, your workplace and the broader world, and addressing some of the, wha the whys around silence and why we are particularly afraid 
to say something that may not agree with the status quo or push back on long-held values and traditions in our family or in our churches, and a little bit of how to speak up and some biblical examples around that. For example, Moses and Esther are two of the um, stories that I really tease out in the book. Um, And its connection to uh, Me Too, well, the book came under contract, uh, but well before the hashtag, and um, we could not have anticipated the timeliness of the topic of raising your voice and speaking out, but it does have a direct connection. I do think that we are finding, even as women and men who are survivors of sexual abuse are coming out publicly with their stories, we're still finding that there's a lot of pushback from inside and outside of the church uh, for people to make public those stories. And I still believe that people need to be encouraged and reminded that our um, part of the good news is that we get to proclaim um, that which is broken in our lives and that brokenness can be healed with God. And so its connection is direct, especially as we see survivors sharing their stories publicly and um, those who have been silent watching the response, which often is, why did you wait? Why are you telling the story now? How can we believe you or why should we believe you if you have stayed silent for so long? Speaking up is is not limited to victims and survivors. It's it's others as well. So, are there any additional guidelines uh, on how to use our voices in ways that are responsible and effective? Um, we need to recognize that we're going to make mistakes, and we may make very big mistakes, especially if you are posting something commenting on something on social media, the potential for making a mistake is high. And I tell people all the time, if you are not willing to say, I'm sorry, then maybe you shouldn't post things on social media. And maybe you need to wrestle a little bit with what humility looks like as we engage with things that have huge impact on other people's lives. Um, If you're going to choose to speak up, uh, know your facts, do some research, and um, also make sure that you are not telling a story of someone else's without permission. I like to tell people that um, when you speak up, come up with Uh, heart of humility and um, consistency. I think people are watching and they're paying attention to how the church will respond, particularly to Me Too, but not only to Me Too. People are watching how Christians are going to address issues of justice. They're watching to see if we really believe the good news 
is good news for everyone. And so um, I encourage people to know what they're most passionate about, but also be aware of how that one passion is very much connected to all of the other things going on in the world. And how will you stay engaged? It doesn't just have to be your physical voice. It's also the ways in which you interact with your neighbors, how you interact with people at church, how you interact with people at work. Um, I always tell my husband that uh, I need to pay attention to how I interact with other drivers in parking lots and when drivers are driving in the left lane. That's when I always think, oh, I am not loving. I am not kind. And I am not raising my voice and using my influence in a kind, godly way. <laughs> so, um, you know, encouraging people, this isn't just about what you put out there. It's, it's really about how do we embody the good news and how do we influence the world around us? Kathy, one last question, and it's impossible to answer because I'm going to ask you to predict the future. And I know you're not <laughs> claiming to have this uh, role of uh, giving prophecies, but what, what do you think are the next steps, the future of Me Too? Uh, wh where does our nation go from here? Well, I will be honest. I want to believe that this is a huge step forward. I'm not convinced that it is. I think we are seeing things happen uh, now that feel very familiar for those of us who love to follow news um, not too long ago. And uh, it just feels different because of social media. So coming from my journalism background, I was eating up like physical newspapers. <laughs> and I know that there may be listeners who don't read a physical newspaper and aren't familiar with the smell and sound of that. Um, I want to believe that the church is moving forward in having good and healthy conversations and putting itself in positions of being able to lead the conversations around power. I'm not so sure that that's going to happen. That's my hope and prayer, but I'm not so sure. Our guest on today's conversation has been Kathy Kong, uh, Director of Campus Access Initiatives for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to Kathy. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.